Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash Support for more information. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I continue this story, Great Expectations. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 4 I fully expected to find a constable in the kitchen, waiting to take me up. But not only was there no constable there, but no discovery had yet been made of the robbery. Mrs. Joe was prodigiously busy in getting the house ready for the festivities of the day, and Joe had been put upon the kitchen doorstep to keep him out of the dustpan an article into which his destiny always led him sooner or later when my sister was vigorously reaping the floors of her establishment. And where the deuce have you been, was Mrs. Joe's Christmas salutation when I and my conscience showed ourselves. I said I had been down to hear the carols. Ah, well, observed Mrs. Joe, you might have done worse. Not a doubt of that, I thought. Perhaps if I weren't a blacksmith's wife, and what's the same thing a slave with her apron never off? I would have been to hear the carols, said Mrs. Joe. I'm rather partial to carols myself, and that's the best of reasons for my never hearing any. Joe, who had ventured into the kitchen after me, as the dustpan had retired before us, drew the back of his hand across his nose with a conciliatory air. But Mrs. Joe darted a look at him, and, when her eyes were withdrawn, secretly crossed his two forefingers and exhibited them to me as our token that Mrs. Joe was in a cross temper. 
This was so much her normal state that Joe and I would often, for weeks together, be, as to our fingers, like monumental crusaders as to their legs. We were to have a superb dinner, consisting of a leg of pickled pork and greens, and a pair of roast stuffed fowls. A handsome mince pie had been made yesterday morning, which accounted for the mince meat not being missed, and the pudding was already on the boil. These extensive arrangements occasioned us to be cut off unceremoniously in respect of breakfast. For I ain't, said Mrs. Joe, I ain't going to have no formal cramming and busting and washing up now with what I've got before me, I promise you. So we had our slices served out, as if we were two thousand troops in a forced march, instead of a man and a boy at home. And we took gulps of milk and water, with apologetic countenances, from a jug on the dresser. In the meantime, Mrs. Joe put clean white curtains up and tacked a new flowered flounce across the wide chimney to replace the old one, and uncovered the little state parlour across the passage, which was never uncovered at any other time, but passed the rest of the year in a cool haze of silver paper, which even extended to the four little white crockery poodles on the mantel shelf, each with a black nose and a basket of flowers in his mouth, and each the counterpart of the other. Mrs. Joe was a very clean housekeeper, but had an exquisite art of making her cleanliness more uncomfortable and unacceptable than dirt itself. Cleanliness is next to godliness, and some people do the same by their religion. My sister, having so much to do, was going to church vicariously, that is to say, Joe and I were going. In his working clothes, Joe was a well-knit, characteristic-looking blacksmith. In his holiday clothes, he was more like a scarecrow in good circumstances than anything else. Nothing that he wore then fitted him or seemed to belong to him, and everything that he wore then grazed him. On the present festive occasion, he emerged from his room when the blithe bells were going, the picture of misery in a full suit of Sunday penitentials. As to me, I think my sister must have had some general idea that I was a young offender who an accoucheur policeman had taken up on my birthday and delivered over to her to be dealt with according to the outraged majesty of the law. I was always treated as if I had insisted on being born in opposition to the dictates of reason, religion, and morality, and against the dissuading arguments of my best friends. Even when I was taken to have a new suit of clothes, the tailor had orders to make them like a kind of reformatory, and on no account to let me have the free use of my limbs. Joe and I, going to church, therefore, must have been a moving spectacle for compassionate minds. Yet what I suffered outside was nothing to what I underwent within. The terrors that had assailed me whenever Mrs. Joe had gone near the pantry or out of the room were only to be equaled by the remorse with which my mind dwelt on what my hands had done. Under the weight of my wicked secret, I pondered whether the church would be powerful enough to shield me from the vengeance of the terrible young man if I divulged to that establishment. I conceived the idea that the time when the bands were read and when the clergyman said, Ye are now to declare it, would be the time for me to rise and propose a private conference in the vestry. I am far from being sure that I might not have astonished our small congregation by resorting to this extreme measure, but for its being Christmas Day and no Sunday. Mr. Wopsle, the clerk at church, was to dine with us, and Mr. Hubble, the wheelwright, and Mrs. Hubble, and Uncle Pumblechook, Joe's uncle, but Mrs. Joe appropriated him, who was a well-to-do corn chandler in the nearest town, and drove his own chase cart. 
The dinner hour was half past one. When Joe and I got home, we found the table laid and Mrs. Joe dressed and the dinner dressing and the front door unlocked. It never was at any other time for the company to enter by. And everything was splendid. And still, not a word of the robbery. The time came without bringing with it any relief to my feelings, and the company came. Mr. Wopsle, united to a Roman nose and a large shining bald forehead, had a deep voice which he was uncommonly proud of. Indeed, it was understood among his acquaintance that if he could only give him his head, he would read the clergyman into fits. He himself confessed that if the church was thrown open, meaning to competition, he would not despair of making his mark in it. The church not being thrown open, he was, as I have said, our clerk. But he punished the amens tremendously, and when he gave out the psalm, always giving the whole verse, he looked all around the congregation first, as much as to say, You have heard my friend overhead, oblige me with your opinion of this style. I opened the door to the company, making believe that it was a habit of ours to open that door, and I opened it first to Mr. Wopsle, next to Mr. and Mrs. Hubble, and last of all to Uncle Pumblechook. Note well, I was not allowed to call him uncle under the severest penalties. Mrs. Joe, said Uncle Pumblechook, a large, hard-breathing, middle-aged, slow man with a mouth like a fish, dull staring eyes, and sandy hair standing upright on his head, so that he looked as if he had just been all but choked and had that moment come too. I've brought you as the compliments of the season. I've brought you, ma'am, a bottle of sherry wine. I've brought you, ma'am, a bottle of port wine. Every Christmas day he presented himself as a profound novelty with exactly the same words and carrying the two bottles like dumbbells. Every Christmas day, Mrs. Joe replied as she now replied, Oh, Uncle Pumblechook, this is very kind. Every Christmas day he retorted, as he now retorted, It's no more than your merits. And now, are you all bobbish? And how sixpence north of halfpence? Meaning me. We dined on these occasions in the kitchen and adjourned for the nuts and oranges and apples to the parlour, which was a change very like Joe's change from his working clothes to his Sunday dress. My sister was uncommonly lively on the present occasion and indeed was generally more gracious in the society of Mrs. Hubble than in any other company. I remember Mrs. Hubble as a little curly, sharp-edged person in sky blue who held a conventionally juvenile position because she had married Mr. Hubble, I don't know at what remote period, when she was much younger than he. I remember Mr. Hubble as a tough, high-shouldered, stooping old man of a sawdusty fragrance with his legs extraordinarily wide apart, so that in my short days I always saw some miles of open country between them when I met him coming up the lane. Among this good company, I should have felt myself, even if I hadn't robbed the pantry, in a false position. Not because I was squeezed in at that acute angle of the tablecloth, with the table in my chest, and the pumblechukium elbow in my eye, nor because I was not allowed to speak, I didn't want to speak, nor because I was regaled with the scaly tips of the drumsticks of the fowls, and with these obscure corners of the pork of which the pig, when living, had had the least reason to be vain. No. I should not have minded that if they would have left me alone, but they wouldn't leave me alone. They seemed to think the opportunity lost if they failed to point the conversation at me every now and then and stick the point into me. I might have been an unfortunate little bull in a Spanish arena. I got so spartanly touched up by these moral goads. 
It began the moment we sat down to dinner. Mr. Wopsle said grace with theatrical declamation, as it now appears to me, something like a religious cross of the ghost in Hamlet with Richard III, and ended with a very proper aspiration that we might be truly grateful, upon which my sister fixed me with her eye and said in a low, reproachful voice, Do you hear that? Be grateful. Especially, said Mr. Pumblechook, be grateful, boy, to them which brought you up by hand. Mrs. Hubble shook her head and, contemplating me with a mournful presentment that I should come to no good, asked, Why is it that the young are never grateful? This moral mystery seemed too much for the company until Mr. Hubble tersely solved it by saying, Naturally vicious. Everybody then murmured, True, and looked at me in a particularly unpleasant and personal manner. Joe's station and influence were something feebler, if possible, when there was company than when there was none. But he always aided and comforted me when he could, in some way of his own, and he always did so at dinner time by giving me gravy, if there were any. There being plenty of gravy today, Joe spooned into my plate, at this point, about half a pint. A little later on in the dinner, Mr. Wopsle reviewed the sermon with some severity and intimated, in the usual hypothetical case of the church being thrown open, what kind of sermon he would have given them. After favouring them with some heads of that discourse, he remarked that he considered the subject of the day's homily ill-chosen, which was the less excusable, he added, when there were so many subjects going about. True again, said Uncle Pumblechook. You've hit it, sir. Plenty of subjects going about for them that know how to put salt upon their tails. That's what's wanted. A man needn't go far to find a subject if he's ready with his salt box. Mr. Pumblechook added, after a short interval of reflection, Look at pork alone. If you want a subject, look at pork. True, sir. Many are moral for the young, returned Mr. Wopsle, and I knew he was going to lug me in before he said it. Might be deduced from that text. You listen to this, said my sister to me, in a severe parenthesis. Joe gave me some more gravy. Swine, pursued Mr. Wopsle in his deepest voice, and pointing his fork at my blushes, as if he were mentioning my Christian name. Swine were the companions of the prodigal. The gluttony of swine is put before us as an example to the young. I thought this pretty well in him, who had been praising up the pork for being so plump and juicy. What is detestable in a pig is more detestable in a boy. Or a girl, suggested Mr. Hubble. Of course, or a girl, Mr. Hubble, assented Mr. Wopsle rather irritably, but there's no girl present. Besides, said Mr. Pumblejook, turning sharp on me. Think what you've got to be grateful for. If you've been born a squeaker. He was, if ever a child was, said my sister, most emphatically. Joe gave me some more gravy. Well, but I mean, a four-footed squeaker, said Mr. Pumblechook. If you've been born such, would you have been here now? Not you. Unless in that form, said Mr. Wopsle, nodding towards the dish. But I don't mean in that form, sir, returned Mr. Pumblechook who had an objection to being interrupted. I mean, enjoying himself with his elders and betters, and improving himself with their conversation, and rolling in the lap of luxury. Would he have been doing that? No, he wouldn't. And what would have been your destination? Turning on me again. You would have been disposed of for so many shillings, according to the market price of the article. And Dunstable, the butcher, would have come up to you as you lay in your straw, and he would have whipped you under his left arm with his right, he would have tucked up his frock 
to get a penknife from out of his waistcoat pocket, and he would have shed your blood and had your life. No bringing it by hand then, not a bit of it. Joe offered me more gravy, which I was afraid to take. He was a world of trouble to you, ma'am, said Mrs. Hubble, commiserating my sister. Trouble? echoed my sister. Trouble? And then entered on a fearful catalogue of all the illnesses I had been guilty of, and all the acts of sleeplessness I had committed, and all the high places I had tumbled from, and all the low places I had tumbled into, and all the injuries I had done myself, and all the times she had wished me in my grave, and I had contumaciously refused to go there. I think the Romans must have aggravated one another very much with their noses. Perhaps they became the restless people they were in consequence. Anyhow, Mr. Wopsle's Roman nose so aggravated me during the recital of my misdemeanours that I should have liked to pull it until he howled. But all I had endured up to this time was nothing in comparison with the awful feelings that took possession of me when the pause was broken, which ensued upon my sister's recital, and which pause everybody had looked at me as I felt painfully conscious, with indignation and abhorrence. Yet, said Mr. Pumblechook, leading the company gently back to the theme from which they had strayed, pork, regarded as mild, is rich too, ain't it? Have a little brandy, uncle, said my sister. Oh, heavens, it had come at last. He would find it was weak, he would say it was weak, and I was lost. I held tight to the leg of the table under the cloth with both hands and awaited my fate. My sister went for the stone bottle, came back with the stone bottle, and poured his brandy out, no one else taking any. The wretched man trifled with his glass, took it up, looked at it through the light, put it down, prolonged my misery. All this time Mrs. Joe and Joe were briskly clearing the table for the pie and pudding. I couldn't keep my eyes off him always holding tight by the leg of the table with my hands and feet. I saw the miserable creature finger his glass playfully, take it up, smile, throw his head back, and drink the brandy off. Instantly afterwards, the company were seized with unspeakable consternation, owing to his springing to his feet, turning round several times in an appalling spasmodic whooping cough dance, and rushing out of the door. He then became visible through the window, violently plunging and expectorating making the most hideous faces and apparently out of his mind. I held on tight while Mrs. Joe and Joe ran to him. I didn't know how I had done it, but I had no doubt I had murdered him somehow. In my dreadful situation, it was a relief when he was brought back and surveying the company all round as if they had disagreed with him, sank down into his chair with one significant gasp. Tar. I had filled up the bottle with the tar water jug. I knew he would be worse by and by. I moved the table, like a medium of the present day, by the vigour of my unseen hold upon it. Tar? cried my sister in amazement. Why, however could tar come there? But Uncle Pumblechook, who was omnipotent in that kitchen, wouldn't hear the word, wouldn't hear of the subject, imperiously waved it all away with his hand and asked for hot gin and water. My sister, who had begun to be alarmingly meditative, had to employ herself actively in getting the gin, the hot water, the sugar, and the lemon peel, and mixing them. For the time at least, I was saved. I still held on to the leg of the table, but clutched it now with a fervour of gratitude. 
By degrees, I became calm enough to release my grasp and partake of pudding. Mr. Pumblechook partook of pudding. All partook of pudding. The course terminated and Mr. Pumblechook had begun to beam under the genial influence of gin and water. I began to think I should get over the day. When my sister said to Joe, Clean plates, cold. I clutched the leg of the table again immediately and pressed it to my bosom as if it had been the companion of my youth and friend of my soul. I foresaw what was coming, and I felt that this time I really was gone. You must taste, said my sister, addressing the guests with her best grace. You must taste, to finish with, such a delightful and delicious present of Uncle Pumblechook's. Must they? Let them not hope to taste it. You must know, said my sister, rising, it's a pie, a savoury pork pie. The company murmured their compliments. Uncle Pumblechook, sensible of having deserved well of his fellow creatures, said, quite vivaciously, all things considered, Well, Mrs. Joe, we'll do our best endeavours. Let us have a cut at this same pie. My sister went out to get it. I heard her steps proceed to the pantry. I saw Mr. Pumblechook balance his knife. I saw reawakening appetite in the room and nostrils of Mr. Wopsle. I heard Mr. Hubble remark that a bit of savoury pork pie would lay atop of anything you could mention and do no harm. And I heard Joe say, You shall have some pip. I have never been absolutely certain whether I uttered a shrill yell of terror, merely in spirit, or in the bodily hearing of the company. I felt that I could bear no more and that I must run away. I released the leg of the table and ran for my life. But I ran no further than the house door, for there I ran head foremost into a party of soldiers with their muskets, one of whom held out a pair of handcuffs to me, saying, Here you are, look sharp. Come on. Chapter 5 The apparition of a file of soldiers ringing down the butt ends of their loaded muskets on our doorstep caused the dinner party to rise from table in confusion, and caused Mrs. Joe, re-entering the kitchen empty-handed, to stop short and stare, in her wondering lament of, Gracious goodness, gracious me, what's gone with the pie? The sergeant and I were in the kitchen when Mrs. Joe stood staring, at which crisis I partially recovered the use of my senses. It was the sergeant who had spoken to me, and he was now looking round at the company, with his handcuffs invitingly extended towards them in his right hand, and his left on my shoulder. Excuse me, ladies and gentlemen, said the sergeant, but as I have mentioned at the door to this smart young shaver, which he hadn't, I'm on a chase in the name of the king, and I want the blacksmith. And pray, what might you want with him? retorted my sister, quick to resent his being wanted at all. Missus, returned the gallant sergeant, speaking for myself, I should reply the honour and pleasure of his fine wife's acquaintance. Speaking for the king, I answer, a little job done. This was received as rather neat in the sergeant, insomuch that Mr. Pumblechook cried audibly, Good again. You see, blacksmith, said the sergeant, who had by this time picked out Joe with his eye, we've had an accident with these, and I found the lock of one of them goes wrong, and the coupling don't act pretty. As they are wanted for immediate service, will you throw your eye over them? Joe threw his eye over them, and pronounced that the job would necessitate the lighting of his forge fire and would take nearer two hours than one. Will it? Then will you set about it at once, blacksmith, said the off-hand sergeant, as it's on his majesty's service, 
and if my men can bear a hand anywhere, they'll make themselves useful. With that, he called to his men, who came trooping into the kitchen one after another, and piled their arms in a corner. And then they stood about, as soldiers do, now with their hands loosely clasped before them, now resting a knee or a shoulder, now easing a belt or a pouch, now opening the door to spit stiffly over their high stocks out into the yard. All these things I saw without then knowing that I saw them, for I was in an agony of apprehension. But beginning to perceive that the handcuffs were not for me, and that the military had so far got the better of the pie as to put it in the background, I collected a little more of my scattered wits. Would you give me the time, said the sergeant, addressing himself to Mr. Pumblechook, as to a man whose appreciative powers justified the inference that he was equal to the time. It's just gone half past two. That's not so bad, said the sergeant, reflecting. Even if I was forced to halt here nigh two hours, that'll do. How far might you call yourselves from the marshes, hereabouts? Not above a mile, I reckon. Just a mile, said Mrs. Joe. That'll do. We begin to close in upon him about dusk, a little before dusk, my orders are. That'll do. Convicts, sergeant? asked Mr. Wopsle in a matter-of-course way. Aye, returned the sergeant. Two. They're pretty well known to be out in the marshes still, and they won't try to get clear of them before dusk. Anybody here seen anything of any such game? Everybody, myself excepted, said no with confidence. Nobody thought of me. Well, said the sergeant, they'll find themselves trapped in a circle, I expect, sooner than they count on. Now, blacksmith, if you're ready, His Majesty the King is. Joe had got his coat and waistcoat and cravat off, and his leather apron on, and passed into the forge. One of the soldiers opened its wooden windows, another lighted the fire, another turned two at the bellows, the rest stood round the blaze, which was soon roaring. Then Joe began to hammer and clink, hammer and clink, and we all looked on. The interest of the impending pursuit not only absorbed the general attention, but even made my sister liberal. She drew a pitcher of beer from the cask for the soldiers and invited the sergeant to take a glass of brandy. But Mr. Pumblechook said sharply, Give him wine, Mum. I'll engage there's no tar in that. So the sergeant thanked him and said that, as he preferred his drink without tar, he would take wine if it was equally convenient. When it was given him, he drank His Majesty's health and compliments of the season and took it all at a mouthful and smacked his lips. Good stuff, eh, sergeant, said Mr. Pumblechook. I'll tell you something, returned the sergeant. I suspect that stuff of your providing. Mr. Pumblechook, with a fat sort of laugh, said, I, I, why? Because, returned the sergeant, clapping him on the shoulder, you're a man that knows what's what. Do you think so? said Mr. Pumblechook, with his former laugh. Have another glass. With you, hob and knob, returned the sergeant. The top of mine to the foot of yours, the foot of yours to the top of mine. Ring once, ring twice, the best tune on the musical glasses. Your health. May you live a thousand years and never be a worse judge of the right sort than you are at the present moment of your life. The sergeant tossed off his glass again and seemed quite ready for another glass. I noticed that Mr. Pumblechook, in his hospitality, appeared to forget that he had made a present of the wine, but took the bottle from Mrs. Joe and had all the credit of handing it about in a gush of joviality. Even I got some and he was so very free of the wine that he even called for the other bottle. 
I handed that about with the same liberality when the first was gone. As I watched them, while they all stood clustering about the forge, enjoying themselves so much, I thought what a terrible good sauce for a dinner my fugitive friend in the marshes was. They had not enjoyed themselves a quarter so much before the entertainment was brightened with the excitement he furnished. And now, when they were all in lively anticipation of the two villains being taken, and when the bellows seemed to roar for the fugitives, the fire to flare for them, the smoke to hurry away in pursuit of them, Joe to hammer and clink for them, and all the murky shadows on the wall to shake at them in menace as the blaze rose and sank, and the red-hot sparks dropped and died. The pale afternoon outside almost seemed, in my pitying young fancy, to have turned pale on their account, poor wretches. At last, Joe's job was done, and the ringing and roaring stopped. As Joe got on his coat, he mustered courage to propose that some of us should go down with the soldiers and see what came of the hunt. Mr. Pumblechook and Mr. Hubble declined, on the plea of a pipe and a lady's society, but Mr. Wopsle said he would go if Joe would. Joe said he was agreeable and would take me if Mrs. Joe approved. We never should have got leave to go, I am sure, but for Mrs. Joe's curiosity to know all about it and how it ended. As it was, she merely stipulated, If you bring the boy back with his head blown to bits by a musket, don't look to me to put it together again. The sergeant took a polite leave of the ladies and parted from Mr. Pumblechook as from a comrade, though I doubt if you were quite as fully sensible of that gentleman's merits under arid conditions as when something moist was going. His men resumed their muskets and fell in. Mr. Wopsle, Joe and I received strict charge to keep in the rear and to speak no word after we reached the marshes. When we were all out in the raw air and were steadily moving towards our business, I treasonably whispered to Joe, I hope, Joe, we shan't find them. And Joe whispered to me, I'd give a shilling if they had cut and run, Pip. We were joined by no stragglers from the village, for the weather was cold and threatening, the way dreary, the footing bad, darkness coming on, and the people had good fires indoors and were keeping the day. A few faces hurried to glowing windows and looked after us, but none came out. We passed the finger post and held straight on to the churchyard. There we were stopped a few minutes by a signal from the sergeant's hand, while two or three of his men dispersed themselves among the graves and also examined the porch. They came in again without finding anything, and then we were struck out on the open marshes through the gate at the side of the churchyard. A bitter sleet came rattling against us here on the east wind, and Joe took me on his back. Now that we were out upon the dismal wilderness, where they little thought I had been within eight or nine hours, and had seen both men hiding, I considered for the first time with great dread if we should come upon them. Would my particular convict suppose that it was I who had brought the soldiers there? He had asked me if I was a deceiving imp, and he had said I should be a fierce young hound if I joined the hunt against him. Would he believe that I was both imp and hound in treacherous earnest and had betrayed him? It was of no use asking myself this question now. There I was, on Joe's back, and there was Joe beneath me, charging at the ditches like a hunter, and stimulating Mr. Wopsle not to tumble on his Roman nose and to keep up with us. The soldiers were in front of us, extending in a pretty wide line with an interval between man and man. We were taking the course I'd begun with, and from which I diverged into the mist. Either the mist was not out yet again, or the wind had dispelled it. Under the low red glare of sunset, the beacon and the gibbet and the mound of the battery and the opposite shore of the river were plain, though all of watery lead colour. 
with my heart thumping like a blacksmith at Joe's broad shoulder. I looked all about for any sign of the convicts. I could see none. I could hear none. Mr. Wopsle had greatly alarmed me more than once by his blowing and hard breathing, but I knew the sounds by this time and could dissociate them from the object of pursuit. I got a dreadful start when I thought I heard the file still going, but it was only a sheep bell. The sheep stopped in their eating and looked timidly at us, and the cattle, their heads turned from the wind and sleet, stared angrily, as if they held us responsible for both annoyances. But except these things, and the shudder of the dying day in every blade of grass, there was no break in the bleak stillness of the marshes. The soldiers were moving on in the direction of the old battery, and we were moving on a little way behind them, when all of a sudden we all stopped. For there had reached us on the wings of the wind and rain a long shout. It was repeated. It was at a distance towards the east, but it was long and loud. Nay, there seemed to be two or more shouts raised together, if one might judge from a confusion in the sound. To this effect, the sergeant and the nearest men were speaking under their breath when Joe and I came up. After another moment's listening, Joe, who was a good judge, agreed, and Mr. Wopsle, who was a bad judge, agreed. The sergeant, a decisive man, ordered that the sound should not be answered, but that the course should be changed, and that his men should make towards it at the double. So we slanted to the right where the east was, and Joe pounded away so wonderfully that I had to hold on tight to keep my seat. It was a run indeed now, and what Joe called, in the only two words he spoke all the time, a winder. Down banks and up banks and over gates and splashing into dikes and breaking among coarse rushes. No man cared where he went. As we came nearer to the shouting, it became more and more apparent that it was made by more than one voice. Sometimes it seemed to stop altogether, and then the soldiers stopped. When it broke out again, the soldiers made for it at a greater rate than ever, and we after them. After a while, we had so run it down that we could hear one voice calling murder, and another voice, convicts, runaways, guard. This way for the runaway convicts. Then both voices would seem to be stifled in a struggle, and then would break out again. And when it had come to this, the soldiers ran like deer, and Joe too. The sergeant ran in first, when we had run the noise quite down, and two of his men ran in close upon him. Their pieces were cocked and levelled when we all ran in. Here are both men, panted the sergeant, struggling at the bottom of a ditch. Surrender you two, and confound you for two wild beasts. Come asunder. Water was splashing, and mud was flying, and oaths were being sworn, and blows were being struck, when some more men went down into the ditch to help the sergeant, and dragged out separately my convict and the other one. Both were bleeding and panting and execrating and struggling, but of course I knew them both directly. Mind, said my convict, wiping blood from his face with his ragged sleeves and shaking torn hair from his fingers, I took him. I gave him up to you. Mind that. It's not much to be particular about, said the sergeant. It'll do you small good, my man, being in the same plight yourself. Handcuffs there. I don't expect it to do me any good. I don't want it to do me more good than it does now, said my convict, with a greedy laugh. I took him. He knows it. That's enough for me. The other convict was livid to look at, and, in addition to the old, bruised left side of his face, seemed to be bruised and torn all over. He could not so much as get his breath to speak until they were both separately handcuffed, 
but leaned upon a soldier to keep himself from falling. Take notice, guard, he tried to murder me, were his first words. Try to murder him, said my convict disdainfully. Try and not do it. I took him and give him up. That's what I'd done. I not only prevented him getting off the marshes, but I dragged him here, dragged him this far on his way back. He's a gentleman, if you please, this villain. Now the Hulks has got its gentleman again, through me. Murder him. Worth my while to murder him when I could do worse and drag him back. The other one still gasped. He tried, he tried to murder me. Bear witness. Looky here, said my convict to the sergeant. Single-handed, I got clear of the prison ship. I made a dash and I done it. I could have got clear of these death-cold flats likewise. Look at my leg. You won't find much iron on it. If I hadn't made the discovery that he was here, let him go free. Let him profit by the means as I found out. Let him make a tool of me afresh and again. Once more? No, no, no. If I had died at the bottom there, and he made an emphatic swing at the ditch with his manacled hands, I'd have held to him with that grip that you should have been safe to find him in my hold. The other fugitive, who was evidently in extreme horror of his companion, repeated, He tried to murder me. I should have been a dead man if you had not come up. He lies, said my convict with fierce energy. He's a liar born and he'll die a liar. Look at his face. Ain't it written there? Let him turn those eyes of his on me. I defy him to do it. The other, with an effort at a scornful smile, which could not, however, collect the nervous working of his mouth into any set expression, looked at the soldiers and looked about at the marshes and at the sky, but certainly did not look at the speaker. Do you see him? pursued my convict. Do you see what a villain he is? Do you see those groveling and wandering eyes? That's how he looked when we were tried together. He never looked at me. The other, always working and working his dry lips and turning his eyes restlessly about him far and near, did at last turn them for a moment on the speaker with the words, you're not much to look at, and with a half-taunting glance at the bound hands. At that point, my convict became so frantically exasperated that he would have rushed upon him but for the interposition of the soldiers. Didn't I tell you, said the other convict then, that he would murder me if he could? And anyone could see that he shook with fear and that there broke out upon his lips curious white flakes like thin snow. Enough of this parley, said the sergeant. Light those torches. As one of the soldiers who carried a basket in lieu of a gun went down on his knee to open it, my convict looked round him for the first time and saw me. I had alighted from Joe's back on the brink of the ditch when we came up and had not moved since. I looked at him eagerly when he looked at me and slightly moved my hands and shook my head. I had been waiting for him to see me that I might try to assure him of my innocence. It was not at all expressed to me that he even comprehended my attention, for he gave me a look that I did not understand and it all passed in a moment. But if he had looked at me, for an hour or for a day, I could not have remembered his face ever afterwards as having been more attentive. The soldier with the basket soon got a light and lighted three or four torches and took one himself and distributed the others. It had been almost dark before, but now it seemed quite dark, and soon afterwards, very dark. Before we departed from that spot, four soldiers standing in a ring fired twice into the air. Presently, we saw other torches kindled at some distance behind us, and others on the marshes on the opposite bank of the river. 
All right, said the sergeant. March. We had not gone far when three cannon were fired ahead of us with a sound that seemed to burst something inside my ear. You are expected on board, said the sergeant to my convict. They know you are coming. Don't straggle, my man. Close up here. The two were kept apart, and each walked surrounded by a separate guard. I had hold of Joe's hand now, and Joe carried one of the torches. Mr. Wopsle had been for going back, but Joe was resolved to see it out, so we went on with the party. There was a reasonably good path now, mostly on the edge of the river, with the diversions here and there where a dyke came, with a miniature windmill on it, and a muddy sluice gate. When I looked round, I could see the other lights coming in after us. The torches we carried dropped great blotches of fire upon the track, and I could see those two lying, smoking and flaring. I could see nothing else but black darkness. Our lights warmed the air about us with their pitchy blaze, and the two prisoners seemed rather to like that as they limped along in the midst of the muskets. We could not go fast because of their lameness, and they were so spent that two or three times we had to halt while they rested. After an hour or so of this travelling, we came to a rough wooden hut and a landing place. There was a guard in the hut, and they challenged, and the sergeant answered. Then we went into the hut, where there was a smell of tobacco and whitewash, and a bright fire, and a lamp, and a stand of muskets, and a drum, and a low wooden bedstead, like an overgrown mangle without the machinery, capable of holding about a dozen soldiers all at once. Three or four soldiers, who lay upon it in their great coats, were not much interested in us, but just lifted their heads and took a sleepy stare and then lay down again. The sergeant made some kind of report and some entry in a book, and then the convict, whom I call the other convict, was drafted off with his guard to go on board first. My convict never looked at me, except that once. While we stood in the hut, he stood before the fire, looking thoughtfully at it, or putting up his feet by turns upon the hob, and looking thoughtfully at them as if he pitied them for their recent adventures. Suddenly he turned to the sergeant and remarked, I wish to say something respecting this escape. It may prevent some persons laying under suspicion no longer me. You can say what you like, returned the sergeant, standing coolly, looking at him with his arms folded. But you have no call to say it here. You'll have opportunity enough to say about it and hear about it before it's done with, you know. I know. But this is another point, a separate matter. A man can't starve, at least I can't. I took some victuals up at the village over yonder, where the church stands out on the marshes. You mean stole, said the sergeant. And I'll tell you where from. From the blacksmiths. Hello, said the sergeant, staring at Joe. Hello, Pip, said Joe, staring at me. It was some broken victuals, that's what it was, and a dram of liquor and a pie. Have you happened to miss such an article as a pie, blacksmith? asked the sergeant confidentially. My wife did, at the very moment when you came in. Don't you know, Pip? So, said my convict, turning his eyes on Joe in a moody manner and without the least glance at me. So you're the blacksmith, are you? Then I'm sorry to say, I've eat your pie. God knows you're welcome to it, so far as ever was mine, returned Joe, with a saving remembrance of Mrs. Joe. We don't know what you've done, but we wouldn't have you starved to death for it, poor miserable fellow creature. What is Pip? The something that I had noticed before clicked in the man's throat again, and he turned his back. The boat had returned, and his guard were ready. So we followed him to the landing place made of rough stakes and stones, and saw him put into the boat, which was rowed by a crew of convicts like himself. 
No one seemed surprised to see him, or interested in seeing him, or glad to see him, or sorry to see him, or spoke a word, except that somebody in the boat growled as if to dogs, Give way, you, which was the signal for the dip of the oars. By the light of the torches, we saw the black hulk laying out a little way from the mud of the shore, like a wicked Noah's Ark, cribbed and barred and moored by massive rusty chains. The prison ship seemed to my young eyes to be ironed like the prisoners. We saw the boat go alongside, and we saw him taken by the side and disappear. Then, the ends of the torches were flung hissing into the water, and went out, as if it were all over with him. Good night.